1: welcome back to the intercooler podcast everybody and this week we're sort of uh we're out of our comfort zone i would say (laughs) andrew i I know that before we get going you want to hang a great big disclaimer off the front of this episode oh (laughs) Uh,
0: by the time we're done with this i will have never spent a greater amount of my life talking about a subject about which i know precisely nothing that i'm about to i i I don't know why we're going to do i'll tell you why we're going to do this. so we're going to talk about motorbikes aren't we um Neither of us has a bike license. I don't think either of us has ever had a bike license. We're not, we're not bikers. Um, but I think, okay, so the, the, I think the, the slightly serious point behind it is I think that there will be many people listening to this um, who are the same as us. People who, just because we don't have bike licenses, do not mean we're not interested in bikes. It doesn't mean that there aren't other circumstances in which we would have gone down that road. And I think there are an awful lot of people who have, you know, for many, many years toyed with that idea um i certainly have i've wrestled with it at times um i've come really really close at times but i've never quite gone through with it so we're going to talk about i mean this is going to be the ultimate sort of layman's um chat isn't it but um hopefully it'll be interesting and we'll talk a bit about um you know the vicarious experiences that we've had the places that we've gone um and yeah see where it takes us
1: yeah this is car guys talking about motorbikes so I'm sorry what could to all the possibly go wrong. T- t- apologies to all the the proper bikers out there. We're going to mangle all this, I'm afraid, and we're going to get plenty wrong. Um, but hopefully, I'll be. I don't know. Maybe it'll be an interesting perspective. We'll see. Um, <clears throat> so, I suppose one of the reasons I want to talk about bikes is that I am curious about them. Um, I I don't think I will ever get my license, although who knows. Um, but i, I if, you know if you love cars and you love mechanical engineering and you love motorsport, it 's almost impossible not to be sort of drawn to motorcycles in some way, isn't it because they are they look they look extraordinary, the performance is sensational, and everyone I talk to they tell me that they're actually way more exciting to ride than cars are to drive um, and also I, I you know I watch a reasonable amount of MotoGP, for instance. And there are times where you're leaping off the sofa going, oh, yeah. my God, I can't believe this is happening. Because yeah. um, they've got no downforce. Because they've got no downforce and they're skinny. Yeah. And there are lots of lines yeah. through corners. Um, but,
0: but, but, but also, you know, just going back to what you were saying about, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by this because you, know, you and I bang on about what's important to us in a car. And we're always going on about you know, back to basics, simple, lightweight you know, compact dimensions, all these sort of things. Well if you take that idea and run with it, you end up with a motorbike. Um so really they should be the things that we love the most. They are the they, you know they are the purest form of mechanized transport, aren't they? Um and you know, I just I just I love and I always have loved the idea of motorbikes. In fact when I was a kid, um I say, yeah, well I was a kid, I suppose, when I was like sort of ten, eleven, twelve, I went through a phase. So this is in the mid seventies. When I be- I was genuine this is when all the Japanese superbikes were starting to come up. Um and motorbikes took you know a big you know, the biggest step I suspect they've ever made um from the slightly sort of clunky machines they used to be to these beautifully built um machines with these, you know, with these twin cam four cylinder engines and so on. And I became really, really interested in them. And then I would have told you that if I was ever going to earn a living out of doing anything, it would have been about bikes rather than cars. But then stuff happens, and um, and it didn't happen. Uh, and there's still a part of me that wonders what would have happened if it had. Um, I probably wouldn't be here to have this conversation, to be honest, but, um, you know, that's another mm. story.
1: Well, we'll come on to that. I mean, there are so many reasons to be uh, to be curious about them. I like the fact that, relative to a car, certainly, you can buy one for a few thousand pounds, and it can be an exquisite machine, beautifully engineered. And that can be your pride and joy. That can be the thing that you look forward to maintaining on the weekend, to riding on the weekend. You can really adore that thing that you own. And it costs a few grand and relatively little to run, I suppose. Um, and that's, I, I just find that really interesting. It, it's actually not about performance for me. That, you know, a really quick superbike is just unbelievably, you sometimes see them tearing off down a motorway slipway or something, don't you? And you just think, my God, look at that thing go. Um, It's not the performance that I'm drawn to, really, because even a sort of mid-ranking sports car is too fast for the road, isn't it? Never mind something with more than supercar performance. Um, But I I suppose the other thing is that if I did have a bike and a bike licence, I wouldn't commute on it. That's not what I would do. It would be, I'd be a proper fair-weather rider and it would be a total recreation thing for me so that there would be no overlap whatsoever with um, the time that I spend on the road. Otherwise, motorway journeys, commuting, driving through town so that when I was on my motorcycle of an evening or at the weekend, it would feel, I'm sure, like this, this sort of a special time, me time. And it would be unlike anything else that I did the rest of that week. So
0: Can I, can I, can I ask you two questions about that? Go on question one is if you only use your bike purely recreationally are you not missing out on frankly the purpose of a bike um which is to just guarantee you an arrival time because traffic jams don't exist yeah and for all of us and you and i've probably done it more than most you just sat there steaming in traffic because some idiot stuck it in the wall or whatever um and yeah, you know, and all these bikes have just come cruising past you. How many times are you sat there thinking, oh my goodness? I'd give anything right now for a bike license? Um, and the second question is, you say, and like I'm almost I think I'm asking myself this question as much as I'm asking you. You say that you wouldn't be interested in the performance. But this is nevertheless something you're gonna use purely <laughs> recreationally, yeah? So you're out there, you know, you live pretty close as I do to Welsh Mountains, and that's the sort of place you're gonna go on your on you whatever it is that you go and get and you know the road is you know winding away in front of you in your sports park, and you're just going to sit there and just go well i'm just going to tootle i'm going to look at the sheep over there i'm going to have a nice time look at the i, I don't believe it I, I and one of the reasons i don't have a bike um is because i just i just don't trust myself i don't trust myself to ride it within my talents i suspect i'd be a pretty average bike rider but and my enthusiasm would so massively outstrip my talent. Sooner or later, you know, I would find myself in a situation where were I in a car, it might be oversteering a bit, might be understeering a bit, and there are certain things that you can do to sort that out and all be well. In a bike, you're in hospital at best. Um, you know, and you and I, well, I mean, we'll probably get onto that as well. But, you know, you and I, you know, know people who have um, been in situations many probably most, not of their own creation. And that's the other thing, um, where you've just got nowhere to go. Um, and it scares me. So sorry, Eddie, so, so the to are you not missing out on the point of a bike? And do you trust yourself not to go nuts
1: at the weekend? Well, with both, there's a theory and a, reali- and a reality, isn't there? So yeah, I suspect that if you had a bike sitting at home and you found yourself in a traffic jam, at some point you're going to go, oh, sorry, I'm taking the bike next time. And I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would start commuting on it um in practice and then yeah okay the performance i'm not that's not what i find seductive about motorcycles but again of course once you're on one and the road opens up ahead of you and there's great visibility and it's dry and warm what are you going to do you're going to give it some you've tap, got a great you?
0: motor underneath you which you know will yeah. be at a 40, rpm yeah are you not going to let it go
1: yeah well i think you probably would it's interesting that you said um you couldn't trust yourself because I hear that quite a lot. And I actually think I could, I could trust myself. Like if I'm in a really fast car, I can restrain myself. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I have to unleash it all the time. And I think probably on the bike. Not all the
0: time, you know, all the time. You only, you only have to do it once for it all go horribly
1: wrong. Yeah. You only have to run
0: out of talent once.
1: Well, and this is, there we go. We're into it now. That's probably why I've never done it um and will I ever do it I don't know I'm mid-30s now I suspect there's there'll be a bit of research out there that says your chances of ever setting off on the bike license journey just does that after your 35th birthday or something um when you know when you've got a family or when that self-preservation instinct begins to sort of grow within you um I don't know what I I do wish actually that as a four-year-old kid I'd been stuck on one of those little scrambler things that you see little children on sometimes just pootling around a garden somewhere um because I, I lots of lots of rally drivers lots of racing drivers they started off on two wheels as little kids and it it gives them a control and a, a confidence yeah with machinery that you just get that in, you, innate you sense you of replicate. balance don't you
0: yeah yeah you do i mean i mean i did ride bikes it's not as if i've never mm. ridden bikes i rode bikes when i was a teenager completely illegally um <laughs> i had a, What's mate a statute of limitations ben. it's up yeah well yeah um I, probably um i wasn't even in this country at the time um i had a mate called ben um who was a really good biker in fact i don't think he ever came off and he had a thing called the honda vt250f um and this had it was a v-twin even if you go and look at one now and i do still do this occasionally and given that this would have been oh blimey early 80s it's still a really cool looking bike. Um, I used to go everywhere on that. Just go to, he got just here, and I'd just go roaming off around wherever I was on this thing, complete uninsured, unlicensed, <laughs> Um And, you know, and, and, and nothing ever went wrong, thank goodness. Um, so, but then stuff started to happen. And, you know, not to me, thank goodness, but to others. And I just kind of got, I just kind of got scared. Um and 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 I've been scared ever since, um, which is why and also you the, the other point to make is you know you think that you getting on a bike is a bad idea you know you're thirty four i'm fifty five me getting on a i mean i think that if you were to do some kind of chart of the people most likely to have a really bad accident on a motorbike a fifty five year old bloke who hasn't really ridden motorbikes at all and has never had a bike license is probably going to be the person who is most likely to have that accident i really do believe that um, you know certainly you know i mean where i live in the y valley very sadly in fact we had one uh, last weekend um fatalities on bikes um and i don't know the particular circumstances of that what i do know is it was a bloke on the bike and he was 54 years old um and they're just you know it doesn't seem to me to be you know young lads in their 20s or whatever doing this it just seems to be middle-aged men you know having some kind of middle midlife crisis and thinking oh, i need to go and get on a bike um and that is absolutely that is another fantastically good reason why i should never ever try and ride a motorcycle
1: okay so do you are you remotely tempted or is that gone now oh, you, yes yeah. you well
0: actually i i was i mean you yeah, know um colin goodwin who will be known to lots of people listen to this and will hopefully soon become even better known to people who Subscribe to the Intercooler app, um, as he is our incoming agony uncle. I mean, he's been a biker all his life. I and mean, before he was a motoring journalist, he was a dispatch rider. Um, and he's raced bikes. Um, he'd never be without a bike in his life. And he has tried for a period of, you know, genuinely 30 years to persuade me to get on a bike. Um, and actually, about three years ago, I got very, very close. I genuinely got very close um, because my children were of an age where, you know, they were a bit more grown up. They were sort of in their late teens and going off to university and that sort of thing. Um, And I kind of thought, well, if not now, then when? Um, And then our friend Henry Hope Frost died on a motorcycle in an accident entirely not of his creation. Um, And that did it for me. That was, you know, if you don't listen to that... I mean, Henry was an extremely experienced biker, um, a very good and accomplished biker. Uh, Henry is also, you know, at the time of his accident, was a lot younger than I am. Um, I think he was 47. Um, and I, I'm just a bloody idiot. Um, and, and and if you are so stupid that, you, that an event that happens like that to a very close friend of yours and you don't take that on board, then... I'm not going to say you deserve what's coming to you, but you know well you you you're an idiot and so so I think that I think Henry's accent really did do it for me um and, and certainly, even if I was stupid enough to to want to do it, uh, I think my family, in the context of that, would have. I mean, you know, my my missus, for instance, she is, she is an amazing woman. She has let me go off and do all sorts of stupid stuff. You know, racing Edwardian cars. It could, probably isn't a very sensible way to part. And she's never batted an eyelid at any of it. But I think if I said to her, "I'm going to go and get a bike license," um, I don't. She, she she wouldn't say, "No, you're not, chum." um she would say something like well your call your choice entirely i will support you but you know if you're asking me for my opinion i don't think it's a great idea i'd rather you didn't Mm. absolutely right
1: i'd get something very similar from my other half i'm sure um yeah i mean henry's case is it's a a very serious one isn't it and it's it's a reminder that even if you can trust yourself on a bike not to take liberties it doesn't matter because you are still vulnerable and it, it just takes one other idiot in a car to pull out on you or something and the worst could happen i i've been on i've ridden on the back of a a motorbike once once ever and the journey was one mile my my mate shippy he's a biker um he's an accomplished rider and uh he just gave me a ride um home one day literally a mile home um and as we were driving riding along a road at 30 um we came up to a junction and a car pulled out on us and he had to get so hard on the brakes that even with me on the back the back tire the back wheel just about lifted off um and actually we you know we didn't really come that close to hitting the car but if we'd been going a bit quicker if the car pulled out a bit later horrendous just like that i'd be off and who knows what happens even at 30 miles an hour if you come off you're you're gonna hurt yourself Um, It's,
0: it's, it's, it's gonna hurt and and you know you're absolutely if I think back to if I think back and I'm not going to dwell on this stuff but there's obviously there was Henry's accident there was a bloke I knew you know it doesn't even have to be an idiot there was a bloke um I knew who was riding very slowly in the rush hour around some square in London uh and it was raining and something had left a patch of diesel or something on the on the road and he just lost the front tyre um came off the bike um as far as anybody can tell, landed on his bum in the road, not a mark on him, run over by the car behind. Um, you know, uh, and the, the, there was a chap um, I knew when I was a kid. Um, well, one of my father's great friend's son, sons was killed on a bike. Another bloke I knew lost an arm on a bike. My brother, my oldest brother, who is fine, but he had a really bad bike accident when he came round a corner and met a nurse who was coming back from the hospital, having done you know a week of nights, and she was completely exhausted and probably wasn't quite as much on the correct side of the road as she should have been. And he went sort of bounced off the bonnet and the roof and landed on his ass in the road. And you know, and he had you know he's had back problems ever since. And the one thing that all these accidents had in common was they had nothing to do with the bloke on the bike. Mm, and in that. all those accidents, if you'd been in a car, yeah. you know, at worst it would have been a bit expensive. No one would even yeah. have been hurt. Mm. um so yeah it
1: gives gives you plenty to think about doesn't it this podcast is not going to be about why biking is reckless or why bikers uh you know should think about what they're up to how they're spending that that's not what we're doing here we're just sort of explaining why you and i have been so hesitant about it i think I I I
0: i think most bikers that i see are you know and i admire them i think i think it's an incredibly skilled thing to do and most of them i see you know when you see idiots on the road, then, to me, they're very, very rarely on bikes. I think people who ride bikes ride bikes well, because, frankly, they know the consequence of what happens if they don't, and they're trying to minimise that risk. Um, so I, I couldn't be less anti-bike, um, but our experiences are our experiences, and we have to call them, you know, tell them as we, as, as we recall them.
1: So you've, uh, you said you used to ride around on bikes back in the day. Um, yeah. And so you, you, probably, you, I'm sure, therefore, understand the appeal, and the, the sensation. You get Completely. what that's all about. Completely, um, <clears throat> a, a Real bikers will laugh at me for saying this, but I think I've had some insight into it as well because at 16, I had a little 49cc scooter um, and it, it had a limiter on it and it wouldn't do more than 35 miles an hour, maybe 38 with a if the gradient was with you. Um, and there were times, I, I used it for getting to and from school in sick form. So I, I sort of did commute on it, I, I, I suppose, and In the winter, it was horrible, and when it was raining, it was horrible. You just bury your head into your shoulders, and you just sit there like this, just desperate desperate for it to be over. However, in in the summer, when it's a lovely, warm, sunny day, just got a T-shirt on, which is probably stupid, Um, maybe on an open road, a flowing country road, even at 35 miles an hour, with the sights and the smells and the wind rushing past you, and the bike just leaning slightly through corners. It's, it, is, it is a lovely sensation. Um, and I can only imagine what that's like when you take away a 35-mile-an-hour speed limiter and you know, you've got a, a more serious bike beneath you, a bit more performance. That, it must be incredible. I, I get why people can't help themselves. I totally do.
0: I recently had a scooter experience um... This will, sound, this will be one of the most ridiculous things you've ever heard me say. Okay, But it is absolutely true. I was, last year, I was very lucky, I went to Vallelunga to drive the Porsche RSR19. So their current Le Mans car. Um, and, and it was as extraordinary as, as, as you might expect. Um, but they only had, they had like, you know, there was one car which we could drive. There were a few journalists who were cycling through it. So there was quite a lot of downtime. And of course, I should have been writing my story and everything else, but I just noticed that there were these electric scooters that Porsche had brought, which were in the paddock. And so I just got on one of these things and just started roaming around the Vallelonga paddock on this electric scooter, which probably didn't do more than 15 miles an hour. It was hilarious. It was such good fun. And I was bombing about and it was just... It was, I was just really, really happy on it. I mean, having just got out of an RSR19 and onto, you know, which is, you know, one of the fastest things of its type that's ever been built, and onto an electric scooter at 15 miles an hour, which is, you know, I could, most people probably run at 15 miles an hour or something close to it. And I don't know, it was just fun. Uh, and I just like that idea of being, I like being completely exposed. It was just nice being out there in the open with nothing around you, um, you know, cocking about on a, on a little scooter. So, yeah, I, I do understand exactly what you mean.
1: Hmm. Yeah, God, I'm, I might convince myself to do something I don't want to do with this podcast. Um, okay, <clears throat> let's talk then about motorsport, bike racing, road racing. Yeah, um, yeah. We've both been to the TT uh, only once. Uh, tell us your story. Uh, again, Goodwin.
0: Colin, Colin <laughs> Goodwin. Uh, he, he had been badgering me for years. And because I'm not a biker and I didn't really want to, you know, go to all that effort of schlepping up to, you know, wherever it is you've got to go to, Liverpool, Hollyhead or whatever, and then getting on the boat and, you know, going over there. And blah, blah, blah. and so I was just kind of resisting it because I, you know, I kind of seen it on YouTube. So I thought, well, you know, I know what that's like. Huh, did I? Um, and then, you know, Goodwin went and rather conveniently built himself his own aircraft. Um, and so he said, OK, so we'll fly. So you've got no excuses it's going to take an hour and a half okay it's gonna um and then we were we were all set up one year and I think it got rained off or something happened no i think it was delayed and then the days that we were we, we couldn't then do the days that it was back on again, so that didn't happen and then i think four years ago we finally got up there um and he flew us up uh, flew me up um and I have never seen anything like it. Um, you know, if you think you've seen the TT on YouTube, you, you, you've, se- you've seen nothing. Um, the difference between Formula One in person and Formula One on a telly is inconsequential compared to the difference in the sensation of watching for real motorcycles go around that Isle of Man course. Um, we got there in plenty of time, and I think it was, I think it was practice day for the senior TT so you know the big boys on the big bikes and colin said well i think we need to concentrate really hard on where you're going to be when you first see a bike going around the tt course and so he said right bottom of bray hill so when you, when, when, the, when they start the first thing they do is they go down bray hill and at the bottom of bray hill for those who haven't been there or seen that you know there is the road goes down and it goes slightly through a curve um, and into a big dip and then up the other side. Um, and I don't know how fast they were going through there, but I suspect it's about 170. And the first bike I ever saw was John McGuinness, you know, oh, the, yeah. the man um, going through there. And and it, and it occurred to me that what I was watching was somebody controlling this machine, not as you would in a car trying to balance you know understeer and oversteer but but almost and without wishing to sound too melodramatic about trying to strike the balance almost between life and death because they were so on the limit and the bikes are doing this they're shimmying they're moving in in in, you know in two two dimensions at 117 goodness knows what when they're completely cranked over and there is nowhere to go um and i can remember there are some traffic lights at the bottom and they had these big blocks around them um and I went up, I can remember going up and just, you know, because you spend a long time waiting for stuff to come past and just sort of tapping one of these blocks. And it was rock hard. And I said to Colin, I don't understand how this is possibly going to protect a rider. And he looked at me and said, What do you mean? Make, what makes you think it's, tra- it's there to protect the rider? It's there to protect the traffic light. Um, and and then suddenly I kind of saw what this event was about. And because we live and I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but because we live in such a safety-conscious world, it never even occurred to me that there was a place. And it reminded me, I guess, of... reminded me, sadly, I was never there, but it made me think of, you know, what it must have been like to line the route of the Milimilia or the Targa Florio back in the 1950s when, you know, there was the same level of safety. And I can remember after that, we went down a place called Vody which will be very well known to anybody who knows anything about TTs and it's basically it's a long place a straight piece of road but it's got some bumps in it and so the, so the bikes come down and over everyone in the air and we were at the side of the road uh waiting for these things to come and I just wondered how far back from the road we would need to stand because clearly they weren't going to let us stay where we were because we were literally on the verge at the side of the road um and we waited and we waited we we knew we were getting closer to the time when the bikes were going to start coming past and then finally a marshal approached And i thought this is when we get told to shove off and he came up to us and he literally said when the bikes come past just make sure you keep your feet in
1: (laughs) that was it (laughs) and
0: so literally you these things are coming past you i mean they've there they must be doing the thick end of 200 and, you know, you could just reach out and touch them. And I, could, and I can remember, and this is why, I mean, well, you know, there's another reason why I'm in two minds about whether I'll ever go back. But I'll come to that in a minute. But I found it so, I find it almost too exciting. It scared me. Um, not so much for the riders, but the experience was so overwhelming. Every time a bike comes past, it's a shocking, startling, severe experience um and it was all to be honest with you it was almost too much for me um and you know and then there is of course the other side of it on that particular day very sadly two people died one of them less than a minute after i'd seen him he was there was a sidecar outfit and i think the bloke in the sidecar bit died um in the accident um and you know and we saw an awful lot of incredible stuff that day stuff i will never ever forget and almost all of it was amazing um but i can i can remember getting on the plane and flying back to wherever it is we flew back to and just thinking i mean just such a mix of emotion on the one hand seeing racing the way i had as a purist always wanted racing to be and as someone who'd gone on about you know you know nanny states and you know um everything becoming too safe and you know and if you know and i say this about you know the sort of racing that i do that you know as long as you as long as spectators don't get involved and as long as you know you're the person in the car or on the bike and you know the rules and you know the risk you're taking and you do it your own free will you should be allowed to get out there and do it but then you actually go and see what happens and you see someone um who then has that kind of accident um and you know i don't think you'd be human if it didn't make you think and i have never said i will never go back but i haven't gone back um and I don't, I don't know if I ever would. I don't know if I will because part of me thinks, of course you've got to go back because it was one of the most exciting, thrilling experiences of my life. It's certainly the most exciting thing I have ever done without actually doing it myself, yeah? It's yeah, certainly the most yeah. exciting thing I've ever witnessed. So why wouldn't you go back? Frankly, because at times it was too exciting for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm a mix of emotions about the whole thing.
1: I feel completely the same way. Um, so I've only been once to the TT. Um, I can't remember the, the year, but it, it was the year that Mark Higgins first did a lap in, in the Subaru. Um, that was the Bray Hill year where he had that
0: oh, the massive... terrifying <laughs>
1: incident at Bray Hill. That almost was a plane crash, but he somehow held it and carried on. You've um, never seen the end car
0: of Get on, get onto YouTube and just go Mark Higgins, yeah. Bray Hill. Because nothing bad yeah. happens. That's the good thing. No. And also, look at the bloke in the passenger seat while he's doing it. Mm. It's just <laughs> hilarious, isn't it? It
1: <laughs> Sorry, is go extraordinary. Go and watch it. Um, so I was there that year and actually I was lucky enough to ride with Higgins in a, in an Impreza that year around the full lap. Um, not,
0: the, not,
1: not the same car. And the course wasn't closed. Um, but of course, the, the mountain during TT week is one way only. And there's no, um, there's no speed limit anyway. So certainly over the top of the mountain, he was unbelievably fast and committed. Um, driving so quickly with no margin for error, but at no point making anything like a mistake. It was exceptional to watch. Using every millimetre of road... Um, it, it, was, it was an incredible thing to witness. And there is, after that, there is no doubt in my mind that the TT course, what was it, 37 miles or something, it is the greatest course of any type anywhere in the world. Um, it's, Tell me, were, were you scared? Not scared, no, not scared. I, I'm a terrible passenger, but on that occasion, not scared, you know, maybe a little bit on edge, but no, not scared. Um, that, that circuit is extraordinary, um, and so I, I totally understand why it's it's become the TT such, an, such a such a legendary, revered event around the world because that circuit, the speeds they're going, just incredible. They're, they're doing the quickest guys, I think they're at or close to 135 mile an hour average from a standing start around that place. Which yeah, is, no, I think they are. Yeah, whoa, that's extraordinary. And so, like well, you, if you, particularly first, if you
0: think there are actually there are actually some pretty slow corners on that course yeah yeah there are yeah, yeah. sort of like 30 40 mile an hour corners on that course so you There's think a hair how much time you've a got to spend- where
1: they're, yeah they're crawling around that hairpin that goes up to the mountain courts and the, the mountain road as uh, yes yeah, just phenomenal um actually yeah one of the things that i really love about watching the tt uh television footage is that you'll be riding on board with someone going through you know you've got trees hanging over maybe rushing past buildings and you go flipping heck this is fast And then another one comes by and overtakes. you think, oh my God, how's he managed that? Um, And so like you, the first place I spectated was the bottom of Bray Hill. Um, And much like you by the sound of it, I was blown away by what I was witnessing. You just can't believe how quickly they're coming through. Um, And you're right, there's a compression at the bottom that gives them a little kick. And they bounce up and they keep going. And I watched a few bikes go through. Couldn't believe what I was witnessing. And at some point, I just thought, I have to stop watching this, because it felt, it felt like someone was going to come off on that compression, hit a wall, and I was going to witness something terrible. I, I honestly had to walk away and just go, that's enough of that. And yeah. I have never, I've watched a lot of understand. rallying, Yeah, I've watched a lot of rallying, I've watched the Dakar, lots of Formula One, plenty of circuit racing, and I've never thought, I have to stop watching this. Never, no. not even come close, but... No. Yeah, the TT did it for me. Um, but tough. isn't it great? Isn't it great? Because, I mean, I, there are
0: people who say it's, it's monstrous that people should be allowed to take those risks these days. Have we learned nothing? And, you know, and it is absolutely true because of the, just the speeds of the things that the TT has never been more dangerous than it is now um you know if you look at me because it's been going on for a hundred and something years hasn't it um and you know very sadly for all those factors you know if you know most of the deaths have been in the more recent decades um but quite aside from the economic argument and i think you know i think we all know what a a a massive economic boost to the island that it brings i just don't think for a moment that it should be banned or it should be stopped. if people want to go out there and do that fantastic i have no desire even if I was a biker, I would. I'm not even sure I'd go and do the the whole Mad Sunday thing, uh, because I think I'd just be too scared of the idiots around me. Um, but as an event, I hope it lasts forever. I really, really do. Um, I just don't know if I'll ever go again.
1: Yeah, completely agree. Um, it it shouldn't be banned. You know, I'd, it, it, the, everyone who competes there, they absolutely understand the risks, and they should be absolutely. allowed to keep taking those risks.
0: Yeah. Um, It's also interesting, isn't it? The 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 guys who have, um, you know, significant accidents but somehow managed to recover—they always get back.
1: Yeah, they always get back
0: on the bike and have another crack at it um, because (sighs) it's part of who they are. It it defines them. You know, honestly, I think that they would regard not doing the TT as you know as good as losing a few limbs. It's it's absolutely, Mm. um, you know, as I say, part of their part of their identity. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Was it was it someone like Valentino Rossi? There are some sort of, you know, meta GP riders who've gone over there and looked at it and just gone, Pfft, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Amazing. Isn't it? It's extraordinary. Yeah. I think it was Connor Cummings. I think that was, it was him who had the horrible accident on the mountain course where he, he just dropped off the side of the road and he was ragdolled through the air. Um, broken oh, is limbs. that the one where
0: there's that helicopter footage of it? Yeah. Having it. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's, yeah. it's, it's a frightening thing to watch. Um, horrible injuries and even after that he 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 went back there and he raced again um and the, the, those guys i'm sure they're just wired differently that to, to be able to come to terms come be at peace with that level of risk and still ride flat out wow that, there's there's something heroic about that and yeah i agree We've spoken about this before. There aren't too many heroic forms of motorsport left, and unquestionably, the TT is one of them.
0: It, it is, you know, it is the raw. It probably is the most dangerous. Um, it's certainly the most raw, most visceral, exciting, thrilling form of motorsport. Certainly that I've ever witnessed. I can't, I can't imagine how you a how you would want to, but even how you could make it more exciting than it is mm. not possible it is the most exciting thing I've ever seen and will ever see I'm sure
1: uh, but who who are these guys and girls who willingly put themselves in those bloody sidecars and hang off them through corners at god knows what speed that is yeah uh, they might even be madder than the riders um, no I think
0: they are madder I think they, I think they are the maddest at all because at least if you're a rider you get to choose don't you you get to choose yeah. your level of commitment yeah. If you're the poor sap in the sidecar um, I mean that I mean that, that sort of relationship I do find very interesting because the level of trust and understanding if you imagine trying to break in and well even if you're a sidecar rather breaking in a new rider or vice versa um, and just working out because they will all be slightly different in 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 the way they transfer their weight and the speed at which they do it and the timing at which they do it and you know and and just that that relationship between the two of them where Two human beings basically have to operate as one, and the price of not doing so is so apocalyptically enormous. Uh, I do find that very, very interesting. Um, there is there is no amount of money in the world that would get me one of those sidecars for even a
1: an eight tenths lap <laughs> round there. <laughs> I just absolutely not, not interested. Oh, okay, good. Well, there we go. Car guys talking about bikes. Um, is
0: is i, there, that was I mean you know I, I i we'll cut this out of the podcast if there isn't an answer to it is there a particular bike that out of all bikes that if you were going to go and ride one um you'd want to ride is it is it sort of like i don't know whether you're a sort of sports bike fireblade fan or you're a, a touring bmw fan or an old um you know japanese classic bike fan or i don't know is there is there anything which really floats your boat
1: it's something to look at i think a a, a ducati panigale is just extraordinary. However, I think if I was going to ride, I'd want something a bit more sit up, you know, upright and a bit more relaxed. Because you, you see people getting off a Panigale, and they can't walk; they're waddling <laughs> yeah, to, to, to the coffee stand, aren't they? You know, and yeah. yeah, and that that posture where you're hunched right over the thing—it just looks, looks uncomfortable. I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about uh, maybe like a Ducati Monster, something yeah. where you're a bit oh, okay. more upright, but it's yeah. but it's it's still a, a fairly sporting machine it's and not still a, quite back to basics and yeah something yeah, like that not a,
0: not a honda goldwing with sort
1: of luggage <laughs> no. <in laughs> no 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 i
0: don't
1: think i'm into that what about you
0: i guess because i went through that as i explained earlier i went through that phase um of just being suddenly very briefly really really getting into them uh, and then i think my brother must have had his accident which then got me out of them quite quickly um but so you all know, the bikes so Kawasaki made a thing called a z650 which was to me just like the sort of the archetypal bike of that era so it had disc brakes and it had a four-cylinder twin cam engine and it was just beautifully proportioned and I also you know 650 is kind of it's not insane um but then when would did i suppose it would have been in the early 80s and this will show my complete lack of knowledge then they started doing six-cylinder bikes yeah so honda had the cbx which has six cylinders blah, 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 right across the frame like that you know cylinders pouring out each side of the bike, you know, beyond the... And Kawasaki had a thing called a Z1300. And actually, I think that was water-cooled. And I can remember seeing a z1300 and just thinking this job. because back then you you know the bigger is better isn't it and you know the, the more cylinders and the larger the engine then clearly the better the bike must be huh, probably not but i can remember seeing these things and just thinking wow um that's really really cool um so that's kind of where i and i also have uh because i know someone i know someone who's got a vincent black shadow and a vincent black shadow is as i understand it the sort of lamborghini mirror of bikes it's the most beautiful wonderful thing and uh, and i see that and as an object they particularly want to ride it but that's something to look at. It is. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of engineering. Um, but the, the more modern stuff. Uh, I mean, you and I both know people who still ride, you know, the latest stuff. I, to be honest, it just it doesn't do it for me. I don't look at this stuff um, when I see them on the road and think, oh, I really, really want. I don't, I don't know why. They just don't. They're not beautiful to me. They're they're, you know, they're purposeful and they're impressive, but they're not they're not beautiful machines. And I think because I have no ability to appreciate them on a dynamic level. The only, thing I can, the only way I can appreciate them is for their appearance. Um, and really, modern sports bikes don't do that for me.
1: Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, we'll leave it I there then for, for, the, for the bikes. We'll leave it there. And uh, yeah, to, to those of you who do know about bikes and do ride, I'm sorry, sorry if we butchered it, it and got Poland. it all wrong. <laughs> yeah. But there we go. That, that's, that, that's car guys talking about bikes. Um, just to finish off this podcast, though, Andrew, I want car guys yeah. to talk about cars, or a car, uh, Phew. because it wasn't that long ago that the Toyota GR86 was unveiled. Um, and certainly, looking at the spec, it's promising, isn't it? Because, I mean, the GT86 was a brilliant thing. Um, this one is 1270 kilograms, so a little bit heavier, but still Not a light much. car. Yeah, a light, light car for a modern four-seat sports car. Um it's now got a 2.4-litre engine, still naturally aspirated, um, with another 35 horsepower, also uh, 33 pounds-foot of torque. Um, but that peak torque is delivered at 3.7 rather than 6,400. So halfway down the rev range, which that's going to yeah. make a big difference, isn't it?
0: Big difference. Big, I mean, you know, I think I think it's really... <coughs> <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, those of us who have been... In Any way criticized the GT86 um, because I, mean, I think it's a car that you know the people who get cars get and understand and love, um, but I think you know it was justly criticized for having this sort of slightly um, highly strong engine or an engine that needed a lot of revs before it would do what it would do, um, and then when it did it, it wasn't quite enough, um, and um, yeah, you know, suddenly a 20% increase in capacity. More torque to develop right down the road range. Really, very little marginal increase in weight. It seems to me that this is a company that is listening. Um, and what I find most interesting is my understanding is that the GT86 in financial term was regarded as the most marginal of successes. It just about washed its face. And yet they still considered, despite the fact that they've got the Supra and they've obviously got the GR Yaris, they've still decided that it was sufficiently important um, to have that kind of car representing Toyota and the kind of brand that Toyota wants to be perceived as to replace it. Um, and then when they did replace it, they they didn't do the usual thing, which was, you know, slap turbochargers on it, give it 400 horsepower, another 300 kilos of weight and go yee-hawly and look at these numbers. They've, they've kept it light and they've just thought carefully about what the limitations of the old car were and done what they can to address them now you know we haven't driven it so who knows it may be a shed i doubt it um but yeah really exciting that people are still despite everything despite all the pressures are still making you know it's going to be a normally aspirated front engine manual rear drive coupe you know that's rocking horse rare these days
1: yeah find another Uh, one of those
0: yeah um well, I mean, above MX5s, there are so, there are so few of them. It's a it's a really, really it's sort of well, Ford Mustang, I guess, but yeah, I mean, as you said, just unbelievably rare, and I, and I admire them even for doing it. So hopefully, it'll be as good as it sounds. Um, I don't know where we get to drive it. I don't imagine it'll be any time
1: soon, will it? I don't know. I don't know. But as you say, very much looking forward to it. And yeah, bravo Toyota for sticking with it. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah good okay we'll leave that one there thank you everybody for listening um rate and review the podcast please and remember to come back next week
0: look forward to it thanks all the best